This is the show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. So I think about that phrase, the, 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 for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is not something that happens accidentally. This is something that happens as the result of, uh, of being, I like to use the term, marinated in the gospel, who spend time soaking up and, and uh, having the flavors of that faith infuse every part of their being. And that happens through intentionality. Now, we parents have the obligation uh, to pass the faith on to our children in, in a way that uh, that is meaningful. And I think sometimes in our current context, we think that that means I'm going to read them the Bible stories. I'm going to make sure they go to maybe Catholic school or at least religious education once a week. And, and that's going to be the thing that passes on the faith. Um, and we reduce kind of catechesis to that, that transfer of information. I'm going to give you the information about the faith and you're going to then you're going to have it and you're going to know it. And if we test you on it, you're going to be able to give us the right answers. And I'm, I'm pretty firmly convinced that moving it into that realm of mere academics is partially accountable for why we see so many people, uh, and as they, as they age, as they get older, leaving the faith, because as they are trying to, uh, uh, gain new information about the world and they find things that are at odds if it's merely a, a, an exchange of information, one of those pieces of information is going to win out. And this is why, in as we look in Scripture, uh, we see something very different. You know, uh, teach this to your children, write it on your door frames and on the gates of your house. Talk about it when you rise up and when you lie down, that it, that it is a an infused part of life. And even the rituals that we see in Scripture um, are more of a, a felt and lived knowledge than it is necessarily an intellectual assent on every piece of of doctrine or or thing that story that they hear about in RE. One of the the most amazing programs I've seen for passing on the faith to our children and and specifically as it relates to catechizing our children in an institutional way comes from a program called Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. And it is a way that we transfer not only information, but that that their understanding of the faith is tactile and lived out. Uh, and I've been able to see this in a number of different parishes and have always been supremely impressed with the way that children who are in that program are able to understand their faith because they have wrestled with it, not only in their mind, but also in their bodies and also in their lived experience. So we want to talk about that today uh, because here we are uh, in our liturgical cycle. We are uh, experiencing the stories of faith, and how do we then help our children to experience those same things? So to talk about this, we are welcoming back to the show Dr. Ann Garrido, who's been a catechist of the Good Shepherd since 1996. She's a member of the faculty of the Aquinas Institute of Theology, where she founded uh, the, the master's program in CGS, uh, in a pastoral studies degree uh, program with Concentration and Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. She now serves as the Spiritual Formation Director for the program, and Anne is a member of the Formation Committee of the U.S. National Association of CGS, 
and offers formation courses at all three levels. She's the author of multiple books, including uh, The Mustard Seed Preaching with LTP and A Year with Sophia Cal, uh, Calvetti, also with LTP in 2017. Uh, she has another new book that we'll talk about here in a moment. But Dr. Garrido, thank you so much oh for gosh, being with us today. Thanks, Tiel, for inviting me. It, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about, so I can't even imagine how joyful the conversation is going to be. Well, and considering how how wonderful our previous conversations have been, which of course you can go find over at outsidethewalls.com, click on her name in the guest list and find those, I can only imagine how fantastic this is going to be. So let's start out at the very beginning because everyone has to have an introduction. How did you first come across Catechesis of the Good Shepherd uh, and how quickly after that introduction were you wrangled in to be a catechist? How long did that process take? Oh, this is actually quite a good story. So I, you should know my background. I originally was teaching in high school. That was kind of where I got started teaching religion at the high school level. And I realized that a lot of the teaching that I was doing at the high school level was unteaching things that had been learned earlier in a child's life. And that then yeah. I had the uh, the immense gift of giving birth to the most beautiful baby on the face of the planet. Uh, I'm a little biased there, my son. And I, it was the first time in my life I thought, as a parent, how do I want to talk about God with him in a way that I will never have to unsay? Um, because that, so much of my work, as I was saying, was undoing things that had been laid earlier in life. And so while I was still marinating on that question, um, I was, my husband and I were in the process of moving back stateside and we, I came over and I had Micah, our son, it was just with me alone. And I will say I, the flight to get back to my home where we were resettling was about a 36 hour plane flight with a one-year-old child. And I just about went insane on the plane. And when I landed my mother and father, who I was staying with, my mom said to me, she goes, um, there's this thing that my, some of my friends trying to get started in our parish. She goes, I'm not really sure it's for me, but, um, I would, for your birthday, I'd like to just send you to the beginning of this course. It has something to do with children. And she said, and I'll watch Micah for the week while you're gone. And the only thing that I heard at that moment in time was, and I will watch Micah for a week because <laughs> after flying 36 hours, I was like, here, you can have him. He's yours. And so, uh, I went off to this course with my mom graciously babysitting my child. And the first morning of the course, I was so exhausted, so exhausted. I don't even remember entirely what the person talked about. I just thought that she was obsessed with small boxes and short shelves and small chairs. I thought, oh, she needs to get a life. And I went and I left the room and I fell asleep on the floor. So I still don't know what the first morning of catechesis of the Good Shepherd formation is supposed to entail. But I just fell asleep and I woke up because I came back into the classroom and she was talking about who the child was. Something happened inside of me because what she was telling me about children was nothing I had ever heard before in my entire life. And yet instantly as she was saying it, I knew it was true. Um, not at the head level like you're talking about, but deep down because I had seen this in Micah. I had seen this in my son at the age of one, and it was so different than what society was telling me about children. It was even so different than what other people in the church had told me about children and what their spirituality is and their capacities. But as soon as I saw it, I was hooked. And by the next morning, I 
total, I mean, I was like, this is going to change everything about the way that I parent. This is going to change everything about the way that I taught. This is going to change. This is finally giving me the clue to the question about what do I, what can I say about God that I'll never have to unsay? And it felt like it just opened a huge window for me, a door as a parent and as a teacher that I have never looked back from after I woke up from my nap after the first morning. This may not be, I mean, I might be asking too much here. And so if so, I'll let you redirect, but um, you can't give us such an epiphany that you had uh, some, some truth about the child that just completely revolutionized your world mm-hmm. and leave us hanging. So can you give us some brief insight into what, what was said about the spirituality of a child that so revolutionized it for you that maybe will awaken something in us as well. Uh, It's hard for me to shorten it to just one or two points, but I'll tell you the most important one for me. The one thing that I, that totally revolutioned my thought was I think I had always thought that the way to do education is that you start because children are very young. They're not really capable of understanding the deep mysteries of faith, things like incarnation and Paschal mystery. No, what we'll do is we'll kind of start on the periphery. And we'll use very general language and we'll kind of talk about like things that seem the most accessible. And then eventually we hope that when they get older, maybe then they'll be ready for the deepest mysteries of faith. Maybe then they'll be ready to ponder what does it mean that God came to us in the form of a baby and the person of Jesus Christ? What is it? What is the kingdom of God? What does it mean that death and resurrection are at the center of our faith? Like I always thought those things we would save for later on. And what the catechesis, the good shepherd revealed to me was that my child, even at the age of one, was already asking very deep and very profound questions If I could slow myself down long enough to get in contact with the profound depth, the profound curiosity, the profound readiness for the core mysteries of the faith at the youngest of ages. So that it's not that we start at the periphery and hope as the child gets older that we can introduce more depth, but to recognize that the person who's in front of us is already a person of profound depth. And what they're the most hungry for is the deepest of mysteries, but presented to them in a way that's accessible for where they're at at that moment in life. And that later we can become more peripheral. But the younger the age, the deeper the richness. One of my favorite lines that Sophia Cavaletti, one of the two co-founders of Catechesis gives us, is that the child comes to us hungry for rich food and not too much of it. Rich food and not too much of it. So how do we figure out a way of passing on the richest food of our faith and then as adults also limit ourselves as to how much we're going to give them? Because there's an impulse as a parent, if we love our faith, I want to give it all to them. I want them to have this and I want them to have this and I want them to know the 15 mysteries of the rosary. Oh no, now there's 20. I want them to know the stations of Christ. I want them to know, and I wanted them to know all of it. And it's like, so if he's like, okay, all, all, in time, in time, but right now give them what they're hungry for at this moment. 
and be attentive to what the questions the child are is asking. Cause sometimes we're answering questions they're not actually asking yet. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that when we treat it like an intellectual exercise, I've got to give you all the information. We do a disservice in a number of ways. One, we miss the foundational moments, right? So if, if all the foundation we're giving them is kind of how the world works in, in a simplified way, then when it comes to, Hey, here's a time when the world doesn't work that way. It's, it's a shaking of the foundation as opposed to starting with the depth and then helping contextualize that as they grow. Uh, the second thing that we do is when we treat it all like it's an educational exercise, you end up with kids who become disengaged. And I've got a number of kids in religious education who are uh, a little bit frustrated because they keep going back and they already know the answers to these questions. They've they've talked about the mysteries of the rosary every year. And so they, they're wanting something else and not getting it at the traditional RE. And so we're having to find ways to supplement that at home, um, which of course is our job as parents. But if we as a church can provide that depth and tell those stories uh, earlier and in different ways, uh, I think that we can do a long, uh, go a long way in actually forming yes. the heart of the disciple. Well, and what our, what our church documents actually, when they talk about catechesis, the primary, the first, what we're trying to do as catechist is primarily to give the child and not just the child ourself too, to have an experience of the person of Christ. And when I have a meeting with Christ, then I begin to seek out more information. Then I begin to even want, um, I want to do right by the one that I've fallen in love with. So another key line in the catechesis, of the good shepherd is that, um, we want to give, we want children's moral actions to be like fruit of the vine, not ornaments hung on a Christmas tree. So we want the child, what we're trying to do in Catechesis of the Good Child, the Good Shepherd, is to create a space in which the child can have an encounter with Christ, a falling in love experience with Christ. And if they have that, then it drives their desire for more knowledge, because there's a why for why I'm seeking this knowledge. And it drives their desire to do good because there's a person for whom I want to do right by. So at the earliest ages, if we can give an experience, and we're not even the one that's giving it, right? But provide a space in which we know that God's going to show up and have a meeting with the child. Um, we as catechists and the Good Shepherd are mere matchmakers. We're not even the teacher. We would say the only teacher in the space is Christ. We're going to facilitate an encounter with Christ um, by the preparation of an environment, by the care of our own words. But the one who's actually going to be doing the work is Christ and the child. Yeah. And there's something that mirrors the sacramental life happening in Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, because I'm, I don't know if you know this, of course you do, uh, but the 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 spiritual life is not an intellectual pursuit it's not merely a philosophy and when we go and re we receive the sacraments we are engaging all of our senses to do so and so to be able to have uh this experience of catechesis of the good shepherd that engages the whole child and all of the child's senses uh is something that i think prepares them for the sacramental life moving on. So before we get too much further in this, let's describe okay. the scene. 
uh, the, the child walks in to a room that's set aside for them called an atrium. And in that room, everything is designed for them. And there are maps that help them engage, but, but like 3d tactile maps that help them engage with the places that they're talking about. There are, uh, um, an an altar and a tabernacle and all of the vestments and all all of these things for them to interact with the things that they see uh, when they go to mass or that they hear about in the stories, but they're able to enter into that world through play. And how does this happen as the child enters into the atrium? So atrium itself, if we can pause there just for a moment and say the origin of that word. This is a word that comes to us from the ancient church, the architecture of the earliest church buildings, if you will. We know that there was a gathering space, that when the faithful were coming in to enter into liturgy, that there would be a space between the street and the sanctuary or the church proper, where they would gather and settle themselves to get ready to enter more fully into the liturgical life of the church. Um, to get themselves ready to hear the word of God proclaimed, to get themselves ready to celebrate the sacramental life of the church. And this space also in the history of the early church was the place where the catechumen were formed before they became part of the liturgical worshiping body. This was the place they received formation to be able to enter more fully into the life of the church. In the early 1900s, Maria Montessori, one of the great pedagogues of our own century, was actually responded to a challenge from Pope Pius X that encouraged new ways of thinking about how children might become more fully members of the church. And she responded by that challenge by creating by um, creating this space that she called after the early church an atrium. And it was a space in which children were going to be able to come in, to gather and settle themselves in order to be able to more fully participate in the life of the church. It's not meant to be a babysitting center. It's not meant to be a children's church, like separate from the church, but really, truly in that ancient sense, a place to prepare themselves to ever more fully live out the baptism they have, in most cases, have already received. And so Maria Montessori realized, following the church's pedagogy of liturgy, which, as you said, very sensorial, the sacramental, we come in as whole persons, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, hearing. She created, um, she recognized that the child's primary experience of the world oftentimes happened through the senses and particularly through the sense of touch of the hand, Um, that the hand, the work of the hand is what oftentimes really helps to form the person. And so she recognized that children learn best through the senses and in particular through what they can touch with their own hands. So in the atrium environment that she began to experiment with way back in 1915, the earliest ones, she would experiment with children to figure out like, what was it that um, what aspects of the church, if they could get their hands on, responded to the questions that they were asking at this stage in their life? And she recognized that children, because they're so essential and they're so deep, the two primary pillars, you could say, that children are really hungry for is access to the scripture and access to the liturgy. So everything in the atrium, 
is either based in scripture, like you're describing, maybe there's some maps that help them to learn where the different scripture stories happen, or we'll have dioramas of different stories that children have told us they really resonate with at different ages of their life, or have to do with the liturgy. So for example, with the littlest ones, we'll have a model altar that has model vessels that they would see in the church. Because if they know the names of those, then when they go into the, when they go in to celebrate mass with their parents, their grandparents, then they're able to feel like they're more fully participating in the liturgy. So uh, a series of materials that was tested with children over the course of the last 70 years now has gradually become refined into creating a space. These are materials that children can work with, with their hands between the ages of three to six that we know really resonate with children at that age. There's another atrium environment that's for six to nine-year-olds, really resonate with the developmental capacities of children at that age. Another environment for nine to 12-year-olds, and a lot of experiment right now going on with zero to three-year-old children. So creating space, like if you had a zero through 12 in a parish, you'd have four kind of different spaces, which I know we'll talk about later, but four kind of different spaces, each one developed based on what we've learned about what children's spiritual needs are at that age. Well, let's talk about answering the deep questions first and giving them the the richness Mm -hmm. in small amounts. Because I, I remember having a conversation with a child going through CGS, uh, who knew more about the mass, uh, and the liturgy than probably most of the people in that church. Uh, they're throwing out words like, oh, this is the epiclesis. It's like, how many of us here in the, listening within the sound of my voice can, can call, can recognize an epiclesis and can know what's happening in that moment of the mass where the Holy Spirit is being invoked on the elements that, that bring about that change and, and bring God's presence to us in the real presence of the Eucharist. And so, you know, typically we would think, oh, well, you know, that's a big word. We don't want to give the kids that word. That's a big concept. I don't know that we need to do that. And yet to say, okay, now every time that the epiclesis happens, the the priest uh, holds his hands over and, and invokes the presence of God, that child is knowing what the divine action is in that moment in the liturgy, when a lot of times we adults are zoned out. And the way that we arrive, this is what the beauty of the method is. What happened was Sophia Cavaletti and John Agobi, the first two women who helped initiate this movement um, based on the earlier work of Montessori. What they did was they would, they would attend mass with children and they would watch because children have such a gift for essentiality and the younger the child, the more essential, right? The more core, they would watch what is attracting the children's attention and let's isolate that moment. And so one of the things that they actually learned from the children, and this is why we're saying it's child led. It's not, it's not the process of as adults, we think you need to know these things, but rather Mm -hmm. let's listen deeply to children. Let's listen to the questions they're asking. Let's watch what they pay attention to in the mass Let's test out, let's create a work that gives them access to that moment and let them do it as many times as they want. Do they keep going back to it over and over and over again? And so it will tell us, oh, that material needs to be included in the atrium because children over the course of the last 70 years have told us that. And so the epiclesis in the mass 
was something that with very early children, we introduced that at the age of three, that the child is showing us from a very early age that at the core of our liturgy, that God is sending the gift of the Spirit (laughs) to transform the bread and wine into the person of Jesus, who we know as our Good Shepherd with us. And that that there's a movement from heaven to earth in that regard, and that we who have received such a great gift, we want to respond in some way. And so then we know that the next gesture that children are really interested in is the gesture of offering or doxology which is our gesture of trying to respond to the gift that God has given us. So is there something more essential about the Mass than that? No, that the Mass is an interchange between heaven and earth. It's about God coming to be with us and us to the best of our capacity responding to that gift by the offering of our lives. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying when children at the age of three have penetrated to the depth of the Mass to grasp that. Everything else after that is just an an unfolding, right? Um, A broadening of understanding. But the youngest child has pointed that out to us. That's at the core of the Mass, is the gesture of epiclesis and offering. Something else in a couple of minutes we have left in this segment that I want to talk about is oftentimes when we're in a traditional RE environment, we are quizzing them with knowledge, and there is a right answer and a wrong answer. Uh, and the thing that I've noticed about CGS is that there's not a wrong way to play, but there is guidance until uh, something is is until the student has mastery over that idea, right? So it's not, oh nope, that's wrong. Let's let's try that again. It's oh okay, watch me, watch me do this thing again. And there is, a, a, I think, a, a more merciful and gentle uh, kind of catechesis happening than that purely intellectual style that we're so familiar with. That is, that is true. Um, on two different fronts. One is that we set children, we want to set children up from a Montessori perspective on six for success. And so we don't answer, we don't ask them any question that until we are fairly certain they already actually do know the answer to. So for example, you know, what is this called? This is the, our, this is our model altar. And if a child says it's called something different, then I would say, Oh, let me represent it to you again. And I won't mm-hmm. ask you the question until I've, I've already shown it to you. And I'm pretty sure you already know an answer, but the second level in which we don't, we don't, um, I want to say give answers to or are harsh is that most of the time, some of the things we're asking do have an answer to them, right? Like this is called an altar. Right. It's not called something else. But when you think about a lot of what we're pondering, the core mysteries of faith, like, uh, well, what is the kingdom of God? Jesus said it's like a mustard seed. What did he mean by that? There's not an answer to that, right? It's not like there's one answer to that. And so anything that child says, um, we are just going to, like a lot of times I'm like, I wonder, I don't know the answer to that either. What we are doing as adults is we are alongside you, child, sitting, pondering the biggest mysteries of the faith, which none of us know answers to. These are mysteries that we continue to delight in and unpack and explore and roam around in for the remainder of our life. And the delight is not actually in ever knowing an answer. The delight is in being immersed in the mystery of it all. And my great joy as a catechist is being immersed in the mystery of it all. Yeah. We're talking today with Dr. Ann Garrido about a program called Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. I am convinced the best way for children to grow in their knowledge and experience of the faith. 
Do you have an experience with it? Do you want to know more? Come and be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On threads, the handle is at step outside the walls. And there's more to this conversation right after the break. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today about Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. It's a program, a Montessori-style program that helps children to grow in their knowledge of the faith. We're talking today with Dr. Ann Garrido, who has been a catechist of the Good Shepherd since 1996 and is part of, uh, of the member of the Formation Committee in the U.S. National Association of CGS. Uh, there's a few other things that I want to talk about. I want to get to some of the objections that I off, often hear about CGS and give you an opportunity to help us understand uh, the ways around those objections in a good Thomistic sense, since you obviously have uh, some some connection to the Dominicans and to St. Thomas. Uh, but before we get there, one of the other profound things that I see about CGS and the atrium is it is profoundly communal that the, the children uh, are being formed by the church. Of course, we, we have that with other models of formation as well. But uh, every atrium uh, around the uh, around the world is put together by the people in the parish. So all of these 3D maps that we're talking about, there's there's plans for it, but it's something that the parish provides. All of these vestments that we're talking about, the kids get to play with and put on, and and the 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 model altar and all of the the vessels that go on the modern the model altar, all of these are created by and provided by the parish community. And so it is a, uh, even if you don't have uh, a person doesn't have the time to be the catechist, there's all kinds of ways for the community to come together to form our children in the faith. You know, TL, as you're saying that it strikes me, I, I, I didn't point this out earlier, but it, one of the things that's kind of interesting is in the Montessori world, instead of thinking about what the children are doing in their um, play, we tend to use a language of work and the, I think for Montessori, it just it gave a sense of like the dignity of what they were about. It was that what they're doing is about the constructing of their personhood by what they're encountering with their hands. And really, when we think about the construction of the atrium, as you're pointing out, the atrium itself is a work mm-hmm. of the community, yeah. right? Like it's it's like that there is a role for the whole community to play in the formation of the next generation of passing on the faith to the next generation. Um, and that this requires the setting up an atrium requires the work of so many different hands yeah. because it's not just a lot of times we think about catechesis. Oh, that's the work of the person who's in the te- the teaching and role, but actually here it's also the work of the woodworker, mm-hmm. the work of the artisan, the work of the painter, the work of the seamstress in your community, the work of the excellent garage sailor. You know, like it's like <laughs> it's the work of many people's hands. And that again reflects that larger sense of liturgy, right? As we talk about liturgy as the work of the people, the atrium also is a work of the people. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk about 
the the hindrances, the things that a community might say, oh, this is this is maybe more than we can handle. How do we overcome these obstacles? I've got three specific questions that I often hear. I'm sure you've heard them many times and you have answers to them. Uh, one of them is it's a process to be trained as a catechist. And I I having worked in parishes before, know the difficulty it is to recruit catechists. And oftentimes it's last minute, you finally find someone who can step into that role. Um, or maybe you have to combine a couple of classes. And so now you've got larger classes. How can we recruit the number of people necessary for an atrium when it takes a year uh, to be trained, to be able to engage in that? And then if they move away, then we've wasted all of that time and that investment and we have to find someone else. And uh, when we're already operating, feel like maybe under pressure or under stress, how are we going to go to this next level? The um, catechist who trained me, who formed me as a catechist initially, she tells the story of the first time she ever, she was in Rome and she was in Sofia Cavaletti, John and Gobi's atrium. And she said she walked through and she started and looked at all the materials that made for nine to 12 year olds. And then she walked further and got into the room they'd made for six to nine-year-olds. And then she walked further and she saw the room for the three to six-year-olds. And she got into that room and she started crying. And she said that Sophia, because she just, she saw in that moment the beauty of it all and the absolute overwhelm of it all. Mm-hmm. And um, she said Sophia patted her and said, "It it is a long work. This is not, um, in fact, we, we tend in CGS even to resist, though I use the word myself, the language of program. Mm-hmm. It really is a way of being in the world and a um, similar to the, it, it's about the formation of a, of a small faith community within your larger parish or school community. So it's not, when we think about catechist, oftentimes we think about it as like a volunteer role that anybody could do. We'll yank them out in the pew and we'll give them some color sheets and it'll be fine. Catechesis of the Good Shepherd does, it takes the role of the catechist really, really seriously. Um, and that there's a genuine, that, that, that to be a catechist, to pass on the faith is a genuine vocation in the church and that it's not for everybody, right? But that it's kind of like you can't force a person to be a catechist any more than you could force them to be a Franciscan, right? The person has to have a charism and a particular call for this. And what we're actually doing is we're, we're taking not just the child seriously, but we're taking the role, the vocation of a catechist seriously. Yeah. And to recognize that to be able to do it successfully, to be able for it to be an enjoyable ministry requires some real formation. I think one of the reasons why we have such a hard time holding volunteers in the church is because people are busy. They're going in many different directions. And then they come and they experience like volunteering in the way that we traditionally teach religious ed. Um, Oftentimes it's not real enjoyable for the children, but it's also, let's be frank, it's not real enjoyable for us as the adult. Yeah, And we get burned out and we get exhausted. The catechesis of the Good Shepherd is not like that. When I attend CGS formation, it's like a retreat for myself. I first am having an experience of falling in love with Jesus myself before I can pass that on to children. That takes time to happen. It's a slow, long work, but I can only tell you it's so much joy. Mm -hmm. People, I go in and I work with three to six-year-olds on Sunday and I leave 
more energized than I came. I don't know regular preschool teachers who can tell you that, but because it's always, I've heard something new. I've learned something more. I've encountered my Christ there. And so out of that, like it is a lot of work and I don't want to underestimate that. One can only do it if they feel like the good shepherd's calling them to this. Mm -hmm. Um, And one might even need to wait a little while till it's the right season in life to be able to give oneself. Um, Each level of formation is about 90 to 100 hours of formation. All I can tell you is that when you begin to attend formation, there's a lot of life and there's a lot of joy Mm -hmm. and it's enduring. Um, So it's a gift to oneself. It can't be something that you're just doing because you want children to know more about Jesus. You have to first believe that Jesus is calling you to this work for your own abundant life and joy. Yeah. The second objection that I often hear is an atrium is a very specific kind of place, and it's not a mobile kind of place. It's the kind of thing that you set aside a room, and it is it is now wholly unto CGS, right? It, that that now belongs to the formation of children, uh, and so we're so fond of multi-purpose rooms in uh, in our spaces, uh, specifically if we've got a school attached to the parish. And that's where we're using uh, for RE. And all of a sudden, we're going to take that room over and the school can't use it unless they're using it for CGS. How do we have the room to do this program to form our children? No, this is a this is a really big challenge. Yeah. And I also, like every once in a while, when I look at all the challenges that are there when you're trying to start CGS, I'm like, oh, never mind. It's just too hard. <laughs> um, but then I just keep coming back to, I know it's, I mean, like it has produced so much joy and the fruits of it are so great. I should say there are places, atrium, it is best if there is a set-apart sacred space that isn't used for other purposes, just because I I have seen places that do set up and take down their atrium each time. It's just, it's exhausting. And if you're already struggling to find joy in life as catechist, the big thing that will suck your energy out is having to recreate the space every single time you're going to meet with children there. There are places that have been so committed to the CGS method that they do 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 it. I, I don't necessarily recommend it. What I would say though, is you can be creative with space. Um, we've built atria before in choir lofts. We've built them in, I've built them one time in the, the furnace room. I mean, you can create beauty in a lot of strange spaces. Um, there are, and, and there are places also though, just to know that there are places um, like in uh, I've seen the missionaries of charity work with this. I've seen catechists in Mexico who actually are carrying like miniature atria on their back to the places where they're going and just trying to start small, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be grand. You'll see pictures of atria that are beautiful that have developed over many, many years. It doesn't need to start like that. It just needs to start small. It just needs to start with, you know, a couple people, a couple children, um, a couple materials. Just like, don't be afraid of not having everything ready to go when you begin. Even though it will look visually like the atrium is all about a space, atrium is actually about a way of being in the world with children mm-hmm. and a way of listening to the word of God and celebrating liturgy with children. Um, the space is actually secondary to the method. There's one parish I know of just outside of Seattle that saw the benefit 
of CGS so much and they did not have the space for it, but they knew what it could do in the long run for their children and specifically in the formation of, of mature missionary disciples over the course of it, that they said, fine, we can't use our school. We're going to build another building. And they built this small, it's not a huge building, but they built a small building on their campus that is reserved entirely for CGS. And it, it was a work of love and obviously an investment but seeing the difference in the results between traditional uh, religious education and the results out of CGS, they said, this is worth the long-term investment in our children and in the next generation of our faith. TL, I've been actually, for 14 years now, I've been going and doing catechist formation on the Rocky Boy Reservation in northern Montana among the Chippewa Cree people. And that community, the priest there, phenomenal guy, Father Pete Guthnick, he checked with the people, is this something you want for your children? They visited an atrium on another Native American um, reservation in Arizona. They came back. They said, yes, we want this for our children. Father Pete got a backhoe, and they cut down logs of the trees on their own property. And they themselves, they built a space for their children yeah. um, in Box Elder, one of the most beautiful atria I've ever seen. Simple, but beautiful, built by the people themselves. So here's the last objection. This is a radically different model of religious education than we're used to here. Uh, and one of the, the differences is that it's not your typical 60 or even 90 minute program. And not, not only is it a longer program for the children uh, in terms of the amount of time that they spend in each session, but also there's fewer children that you can fit into that because we can put 25 kids in a class, but you can't put that many children in an atrium at a time. And so the scheduling is just so difficult, both for the parish side and for the parent side. How do we overcome that that obstacle uh, when it seems like there's just easier ways of handling it so that it's, you know, like you said, this is so much effort. Why will we do it? What is the benefit and what's the way around that? One of the things that's hardest, I think, to grasp around CGS is that ultimately we do not understand ourselves as a religious education uh, program, but a community of adults and children who are want to have a common religious experience of God with one another that is shaped by the child's spiritual journey primarily. So we are not it's our goal as a program is not to, and this sounds the most radical and crazy thing I'll say in the hour is not to quote, educate the children as many children in the faith as possible, but to actually create small, small Christian faith communities of adults and children who sit side by side and listen to the word of God, celebrate liturgy side by side with one another and say, let's meet God together. And you child, the way that you find God, you're going to lead me there too. With community, when one's really trying to build community, um, we have we've discovered like what's there needs to be a kind of a ratio of adults and children in side by side seating with one another. And um, while Montessori herself, Montessori would have been like, oh, you can have one adult and twenty four children. Um, and sometimes in a really great Montessori school, maybe that will still work. But many of us right now in the United States, at least, are discovering. Uh, that's not working for us. That that the better number of ratio of adult to children is probably like one to eight, somewhere mm -hmm. around there. So in my in the atrium that I'm in right now at my parish, 
uh, it's me as the catechist and I have an assistant who's a, um, uh, older, like a grandmother in the parish, an amazing assistant. And the two of us between us have, I think we've got 12 children, 11 children at a time, but that allows a true peaceful contemplative environment where we can all be really listening to the word of God. It allows us as adults to continue to learn and grow and, and, um, deepen our own faith experience by being with the children. I think when that, if it's just becomes like, I'm there to try to impart this to the children and there's nothing that's, that allows me space to listen or to learn or to grow because it's too, I'm too, uh, focused outward. Um, it loses the contemplative nature of the space. It loses its retreat house like quality. It makes me less able to listen. Mm-hmm. So CGS, it's not about numbers. A key parable for us is the parable of the mustard seed. It's to take not just the child who's small, but to take what our own efforts are that might also be small and to be okay with being small, mm-hmm. to be okay with that. So you've piqued some interest. Uh, those who are listening, they're like, well, I at least want to, I want to research this. I want to know more yeah. about it. What is the next step? How does someone find out about CGS? Maybe uh, to witness an atria uh, and the way that that works. Um, how does someone begin the process of inquiring about whether to begin using CGS in their parish? I would say the best place in the United States to start is our National Association's website, which is cgsusa.org. Um, there's also a fabulous website from Canada. If you're close, if you're a Canadian listener, um, you can check out CGS in Canada. They also have a great site, and both of these sites would give a little bit of information about CGS. They'd give there's a couple great books that like parents could read or a DRE or a priest could read just to find out a little bit more information about it and what it would take to get started. Um, for example, there's a book called by Tina Lillig called uh, CGS in the Parish Setting. And which is a great book on like just how to get started. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about trying to write one on CGS in the Catholic school setting. Again, just a way of getting started. Uh, my own recent book is called Preaching with Children, and it's written for like priests and deacons as a way of just understanding a little bit better about spirituality of children from a CGS perspective. Um, our website also would include where are their formation courses being offered. Uh, that can help train catechists. So, and it has a locator for where the atria all over the country are. And um, most places that have an atria, I think are happy to be located on our map and are happy. If you reach out to the person there, they often would do like, Oh yeah, come and see, come, come watch a session. Um, I know if you reached out to me in Decatur, Georgia, I'd be like, Oh yeah, we're meeting at this time. Come and come and observe. See, kind of like what Jesus says, right? Right. Come and see, come and see. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Garrido, it has been such a pleasure to have you talk about this program that I, that I think is uh, among the best, if not the best way to form our children in the faith. Uh, I hope that those listening are interested, their interest is piqued, and that they begin this journey in their own parish. Thanks again for being with us. Thanks for having me, TL. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Ann Garrido, or you want to go back and listen to something again, or share it with your friends on social media, Have no fear, all of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com, including the previous episodes that we've had with Dr. Garrido. You can find those by going to the guest list, scrolling down to the doctor section until you find Dr. Garrido's name, and there you'll find all of the episodes that she has been a part of. 
If you can't get enough, if you've enjoyed this conversation and you want more, I've got good news. There is more. Each and every week, we record an extra segment that we make available to all those who support the show through Patreon to thank them for the support that they've given us. If you want to learn more about that community, go over to OutsideTheWalls.com and click the Patreon link. Now let's turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingers, linking Scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, and so much more. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading today from Scripture comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. And the people were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he became indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not prevent them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Amen, I say to you, whoever does not accept the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. Then he embraced them and blessed them, placing his hands on them. That reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, but we could just as easily have read that out of the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke. This story appears in all three and interestingly is followed immediately by the story of the rich young ruler or the the, the rich young man who came and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, Jesus encourages him to, to follow the commandments and varies a little bit from story to story. And the the man says, all of these things I've done. And he says, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. And we focus, I think, too often on the go and sell all that you have, although I think that there is much that the church says about that. And throughout history, what the church fathers have, have encouraged us to this spirit of generosity. But more so, it's that second half. Come follow me. And he says that in the same way that he says it to all of his disciples when he called them. It's the same kind of call. The only difference we have is that this person walks away sad and, and the others follow. But, but here I think we're seeing this juxtaposition precisely because he is not accepting the kingdom of God like a little child. Take all of these things that you have that would prevent you from radical trust Take all of these things that you have that would prevent you from following me where I'm going uh, and give them away so that you can follow, right? Receive the kingdom of God as a little child with, with extreme trust and follow me. It's one of the things that the church speaks about as it talks about catechesis is that not only do we teach our children, but they teach us. And if we come at this only from an aspect of, I'm going to pass along information to these, these uh, sponge minds so that they can have all of the correct answers, then we're not going to be approaching this, I think, in the way that we should be, from, from a place of, as Dr. Greta was talking about, from a place of community, of coming together as community, learning from one another as we pursue the kingdom of God together. And so, do not hinder the little children. Let them come to Christ, and to do so in a way that that we don't control the outcome of, right? We're not going to set up the queue. We're simply going to say, here, come, come and be with Christ, and 
we're going to learn from them as much as they learn from us as we walk in community and in uh, growth and in love of our Savior together. Our reading today from Church History comes from the Apostolic Exhortation, Christi Fidelis Leci. Children are certainly the object of the Lord's tender and generous love. To them he gave his blessings, and even more, to them he promised the kingdom of heaven. In particular, Jesus exalted the active role that little ones have in the kingdom of God. They are the eloquent symbol and exalted image of those moral and spiritual conditions that are essential for entering into the kingdom of God and for living the logic of total confidence in the Lord. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Children are a continual reminder that the missionary fruitfulness of the church has its life-giving basis not in human means and merits, but in the absolute gratuitous gift of God. The life itself of innocence and grace of many children, and even the suffering and oppression of unjustly inflicted upon them, are, in virtue of the cross of Christ, a source of spiritual enrichment for them and for the entire church. Everyone ought to be more conscious and grateful for this fact. Furthermore, it must be acknowledged that valuable possibilities exist even in life's stages of infancy and childhood, both for the building up of the church and for making society more humane. How often the Council referred to the beneficial and constructive effects of the family, the domestic church, through the presence of sons and daughters. Children, as living members of the family, contribute in their own way to the sanctification of their parents. The Council's words must also be repeated about children in relation to the local and universal church. John Gerson, a great theologian and educator of the 15th century, had already emphasized this fact in stating that children and young people are in no way a negligible part of the church. That reading again comes from the apostolic exhortation from John Paul II, Christofidelis Leici. And I think that so often we, we do think of uh, children as, you know, coming to the mass sitting and making some noise and distracting people and and but really they're they're just there to kind of soak it up and to be around the parents so that when they get older and they can use their minds more fully then they can make a choice for faith but this is not the image that the church gives us through baptism they are fully integrated into the life of faith and are participants in our community and so the the cries that we hear in mass they should serve even not as distraction but rather as a refocusing reminding us we are to enter into the kingdom of god with the complete trust that a that a child has for its parent and with the complete faith that that cry will be heard and answered and so too as we hear our children and we learn from them we can then cry out in our own way, within our souls, trusting that God will provide for us and that that cry of our hearts will be heard and answered. 
That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I want to encourage you to go and take a look. Consider bringing Catechesis of the Good Shepherd into your parish. Today's show was brought to you by Carrie Carlson and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link to learn more. Be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. On threads, the handles at StepOutsideTheWalls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.